Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Formed. Word formed. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. Thank you that you have spoken, and every week we get to hear from you. We love the words of our Father, and so we come to hear and we come to respond. We come to worship you. We never want to get comfortable with the fact or just kind of, uh, you know, take for granted that we get to hear from you. We get to hear from you every day. We get to hear from you all the time. God, help us when we open up our Bible to realize that we're getting to hear from our Father. We're excited to hear what you have for us this morning. Help us, help me, help me to preach faithfully, help me to point people to you. This morning, there's, there's a majority of my family here, brothers and sisters, and I, I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us, that we would walk out of here excited about what you're doing. For those that are here that don't know you yet, I pray that you would grant them repentance, I pray that you would open their spiritual eyes, I pray that you would regenerate their heart, and I pray this morning they would trust in you, that they would repent of their sins and be saved. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The Catholic and Protestant divide can be boiled down to two big categories. Justification and authority. Authority. Authority is something that's not all that, hey, my dad's here this morning. Hey, Dad. I'm glad you're here. Really glad you're here. Justification and authority. And uh, authority is something that people generally run from these days, but authority is inescapable. Authority is everywhere, and authority is, has been given by God. So these two questions, justification and authority, still are a point of division between Catholics and Protestants. So the first question is, how can a person be made right with God? And we have a different answer to that question, and... We believe the scriptures teach that through faith and faith in Christ alone, the work of Christ alone on our behalf. And how you answer the second question is uh, the dividing point as well. Here's the question. Does the word of God regulate the church or does the church regulate the word of God? Is the word of God authoritative over the people of God or is the church in a parallel authority with the word of God regulating what the Word of God teaches. So there's, there's different answers to those questions. So we have to recognize that the Bible is our authority. And so if I do anything goes against the Word of God, then I'm acting out of the authority God has given me. I, I, I am to be subject to the Word of God. So is every pastor here. And so is the church. The church is supposed to be subject to what God has to say. And so we take the, the Protestant position on that because, just like everybody tries to do, but we, we want to take the biblical route. And we must adamantly declare that the Word of God regulates the church. The Word of God is authoritative of over all we say and do. What does God have to say about it? And then when He speaks, the issue is settled. We need to obey and follow Him. And so today we're going to see how the Word of God has shaped the people of God even before the New Testament... We see when Ezra stands up to read, the people are supposed to respond. And so we're going to be in Nehemiah, and we're going to see the authority of the Word of God over the people of God. 
And we're going to see how the Word of God shapes the people of God. We have to hear from God. That's the issue. We come to church to hear from God. We don't come to hear the ramblings of a preacher. We don't come to just simply encourage each other. We come because we want to hear our Father speak. And every time we open this book, we are hearing the words of the God of the universe. He has spoken, and we want to hear from Him. We look at it this morning. Verse 1 in chapter 7. We mark a transition point in the book of Nehemiah. Adam mentioned it last week. We're going to mention it again today. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in the front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been yet rebuilt. Through the opposition we saw last week, Sanballat and the boys came over and over and over again. There was wave after wave after wave of opposition. There was famine, there was persecution, and yet in 52 days the walls were built and, as we saw last week, Adam struggles to finish projects uh, after he starts the project. Uh, they finally finished the project, and I'm sure Adam, if you've seen the Christmas decorations, I find it hard to believe that he can't finish what he starts, because if you see the Christmas decorations at the Lewis Light Show, I would definitely start that project and quit, and there would be no Sparks Light Show. It would just, have you seen the Christmas lights? Here, here's the, my dream Christmas decorations are the, is the one where the Grinch has one string of lights pulled down from the gutter, and he's standing there with like a creepy face, you know? And the idea is that he had stolen all of your amazing, ornate Christmas decorations. And so that's the, you know, the Grinch did it. And you just have to put up one strand of light. That's amazing. Many of you may be like Adam and uh, may be like most of us where we do struggle. They finished the project. They started it. They finished it. It was an amazing thing. They were able to pick up stone after stone, everybody working together. And they finished, they finished the wall. And now we make a... Transition. We turn the corner in the book and we, we move from the walls of the city to the city, the people of the city. So we're, we're, we're no longer working on the wall. We're no longer working on the gates. We're, we're saying, how do the people of God, now that we're rebuilding the city, now that we're inhabiting some of the villages and the towns around Jerusalem, now that we have some of the houses we saw last week or, or three weeks ago that vineyards, houses, and everything were being on loan and mortgaged out. So we know that Many of the houses in the city, because of verse five, were not yet, or verse four, were not yet rebuilt. But we know that there were some houses and vineyards in place in the smaller towns outside of Jerusalem. Now that things are starting to be rebuilt, how do we rebuild ourselves? We've been in exile in Babylon. We've been educated in the ways of Babylon. We've been around pagans. How do we rediscover what it means to be the people of God? And so we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Nehemiah, not just the wall built, but the people built. And it's going to be helpful for us. God is going to put his people in order through his word. The walls and the gates are fixed. Now the people. Now it's interesting because it's, uh, we find in the scriptures that it's a whole lot easier to work with brick and mortar than it is with the people of God. <laughs> it's a lot easier to build a wall than it is to build a community. The wall doesn't talk back. It may fall on your finger and sever your finger, but uh, the wall doesn't talk back. The wall doesn't do what the people of God have, have notoriously done so well, which is grumble, which is complain, which is to be slow, to be obedient. And uh, 
So we're going to see, though, it is a, a worthy, worthy task. And just like building the wall was a worthy task, so is building the people of God. We're going to see some unique advantages that we have as the New Testament people of God with the Spirit of God indwelling us at the end. But we're turning to rebuilding the people. Rebuilding the people. Now, we see right in verse 1, it makes a transition. There's the transition. There's the, the, the turning of the corner. We built and set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. So now we're beginning to appoint a structure to the people of God, and that's where we're going. So Hanani and Hananiah. Nehemiah delegates authority to his brother and to Hananiah. And so now they are in charge of some aspects of what's going on in Jerusalem. He delegates authority. And the people of God are always to do this, to delegate authority. Not just to assign position, but delegate authority and to pass off authority. Where there's delegated authority, where God has designated authority to go. And we see this right in Nehemiah. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it First, Second 2 Timothy and Titus as well. But they were assigned to open the doors and close the doors at a particular time of day. And so even though the people of God had worked through the opposition, even though the threat was not as high as it was when the walls were being built, there was still a greater and less greater time to open the gate, and the threat was there. And so they were to open and close the gate when the sun was hot because there wasn't as much movement during the day. And they were to appoint guards to protect their city and their home. The city itself, even though it was large, that still needed to be protected. And so now we're starting to get the structure and order and defenders of the city. And so the question now turns to, okay, who's going to fill the city? And this is where Nehemiah makes a list. It's almost an identical list with Ezra chapter 2. And he begins to reflect on the people who had been brought back from exile in Babylon back into the city in Jerusalem. And this city was about... 47,000 people or so, plus about 7,000 servants. And so you're looking at about uh, Jewish people, 42,000, and 7,000 more, more servants from other people outside of Israel. So you're, you're looking at a city about the size of Carbondale when all the students are here. You're looking at a decent-sized city, probably a little bit bigger, but that's the exiles that came back. And so if you'll look at chapter 7, starting in verse 6, down through all almost all the rest of chapter 7, you're just going to get a list of people. And so for the sake of me not stumbling through every single one of these names, I'm going to let you read those names on your own when you get home. But Nehemiah lists all the people that were to come back, that came back to Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 5. Verse, yeah, 5. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it. Okay, we got a list. Nehemiah knew what God had put in his heart to do. There's going to be times in our lives where we, we know God has something for us to do. We can't uh, even define necessarily how we know this. We just know that it's the case, that God has put something in my heart. I've got to do it. And I know that this is going to honor him, and so we have to do it. And this is one of those times for Nehemiah. God put his put something on his heart to do, and as Nehemiah did all that God had called him to do, he's going to continue, by God's grace, to do what God had put in his heart to do. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to assemble all of these people, and then he wanted them to hear the words of God, because he knew if we're going to last, if we're going to be a lasting city, if we're going to do things right this time, which we find out they don't, but if we're going to do things right this time, he knows that they have to be informed and shaped by the word. So he names all the exiles. They came back with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Nehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, probably Esther's older cousin. You know, if you remember, this is a, Esther was a 
contemporary of Nehemiah, and most likely the Mordecai in verse 6, excuse me, in verse 7, is the Mordecai from the book of Esther. Bilshan, Miss Pereth, Big Via, Nahum, most likely the prophet, and Banna, Banna. And then we go down and we get a big list of the men of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the sons of Solomon's servants, the temple servants, and others. And then in verse 66 through 73, we see the totals of all these numbers. Go ahead and look at your, uh, turn your eyes to verse 66. The whole assembly was together, and there was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Continuing on, verse 70. Now some of the heads of their father's houses gave to the work. The governors gave to the treasury 100 derricas of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minus silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minus of silver. And what was the rest of the people gave? 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people of the temple servants in all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, Nehemiah lists them. And then the people are going to gather together. And this is where we're going to hear about the word of God shaping the people of God. Look at verse 1. And the people gathered as one man into the square, the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The people of God came together as one man, all of them. Now most likely, most likely, this is like in other times in the scriptures when we talk about all, the word all, sometimes the word all means each and every, so it means every single person listed. Listed. Other times, like in First Timothy chapter 2, the word all stands for all types, so not each and every, but all types. One way or another, we have a massive assembly representing all types, everybody listed through that exile list, or each and every, and this is a total number of somewhere between 45, 50,000, something like that. Either way we look at it, we have a massive crowd of people coming together, and they were united as one man. Now, what that means is they were united in their purpose of being there. They wanted to hear from God. We're going to see here in a second that they beg Ezra to read the law of God. Would you please read us Leviticus? We just have to hear from God. We have to hear the law of God. They were eager and with one voice wanting to know what God would have them do. They wanted and they were eager and they were ready to hear from God. Now Ezra is going to teach. Look at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Oh my. Uh, everybody who could understand, this is why we probably think it's each and every and not every single person. So most likely there were some, some children who weren't able to understand or some others that may, have, may or may not have been there. But it was a large crowd of people on the first day of the seventh month. This is the same month as the Day of Atonement. So this is a month of recommitment, of covenant renewal. And notice that it was at the water gate. It was not at the rebuilt temple, which 
you would suspect. Because at this time in the history of Israel, the temple had been rebuilt, and yet they met at the water gate instead. Now, there are several you know, commentators you know, debate back and forth why that was the case. But I think, I think we can say that maybe it was to indicate that the worship of God, the hearing from God, should not be relegated to just one particular place. That the word of God is just as authoritative at the water gate as it is at the temple. Maybe. That's what I tend to think. I think there's a lot of practical implications that we can take from this. The fact that uh, the word of God doesn't stop with the people of God. Or the places that the people of God congregate. That the word of God is authoritative at the watering hole at work. That the word of God is authoritative wherever we go. When God speaks, people are required to hear and respond to him. And if they don't, there is right judgment. But Ezra teaches and the people respond. They were eager. So Ezra ends up standing on a box so that everyone can hear. Look at verse 5. And Ezra stood, verse 4, excuse me, Ezra stood, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform as they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathaniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaniah. And on his right, Padiah, Mishael, Mekajiah, Hashem, Hashbadadon, no matter how much I practice this name, names always, always, they trouble me. Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it all, and the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra blessed the people. He went to preach the word, and they were eager to hear it. Please, just give me more of it. Multiple hours he was reading from the law of God. You can see how eager the people were. They had just done all this work, and now they're thinking, okay, what what next? What are we to do? Certainly there were projects that were still left to do, but before they did those projects, they they wanted Ezra to preach to them. And so Ezra stood up. And we find in verse 6 that this is the right kind of worship at this moment. They were not worshiping the book as some relic. They were worshiping the God of the book. In verse 6 it says, Amen and Amen. They lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They did not worship the Bible. They worshiped the God of the Bible, which is so crucial. There are so many who claim to know the Bible. In fact, they do know Bible verses, but they do not know the God of the Bible. You can have a lot of verses memorized and not know the Lord. This is the warning that Jesus gives in John chapter 5 when he says, You, you search the scriptures because you think in them they, you have life, but you fail to see that it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. To groups of people who had memorized just blood, sweat, and tears. They had given their life to memorizing the book as a relic. But they did not know the God of the book. And they missed Jesus, the Messiah, who is all over it, by the way. Once the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see, and once you look and you read in the Old Testament and you see all these pictures, you're like, man, Jesus is literally everywhere. You see him everywhere. There's just shadows. There's pointers. There's signs. There's stories of redemption. There's blood sacrifices. You see it everywhere. There's substitution. There's the passing over with blood on the door. And there's the connection with the cross. And you see all of this. And you're like, man, how how do you not see this? You see the blinders that are there. And people who suppress the truth. 
This was all of us, by the way, before Christ came to us, before the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see. You have to know Jesus. And this is the point. They knew, they worshiped, they were worshiping in this moment. They were worshiping the God that Ezra was talking about. It goes on, we see that Ezra had help. Look at verse 7 and 8. And Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, and Agab, and Shabbathai, and Hodiah, and Messai, and Kelta, and Azariah, and Josabed, and Hanan, and Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Ezra had help. And they helped the people understand. They read clearly, giving the sense of the words so the people that could understand. Um, that's why teachers of God's word should always be preaching in such a way where the people of God are not dependent upon that preacher. You give the sense where they recognize, oh, yeah, of course, I see that. There's a way to preach that obscures truth to try to impress that the preacher's trying to impress everybody by actually obscuring the truth. Whereas proper teaching and preaching of the Bible, you should open it up and everybody should say, oh yeah, that's, I see it right there. There it is. They're not wanting to obscure the tr truth. They're wanting to expose the truth. Here, you can do this. You, you can see this. It's right here. So they give the sense and they tried to help the people understand what God had to say. They weren't obscuring as if it was too hard for them. We should always be trying to show each other, look, the, the scriptures are clear. There's some things that are hard to understand, but the scriptures are really clear. And if it's hard to understand, it's really clear that it's hard to understand. <laughs> it's really clear. It's just hard to understand because God says to us, my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There are things, secret things belong to the Lord, but what's been revealed belongs to us. Nehemiah and, Nehemiah and Ezra knew if the people of God were going to be reformed and rebuilt, they had to be built up by the word of God. They had to have the Bible. The people had to know the word. Give them the word. Give it to them. They have to have it. They need it. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to see why it's so important that the people of God have the Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We're going to connect the Testaments. We're going to see a common theme, the unity of all of the Bible. This principle we see in Nehemiah remains true through every single generation. Now, the people of God have to, if they're going to be rightly formed, if they're going to live their life, they have to hear from God. They just have to know what God has to say. I want us to be awed by the God who would give us his word. And I want us to love his words. There's a subtlety here because you don't want to worship the actual like paper. But we do want to salivate. We, we want to hear our father speak. And we want to love the words of God. The words of God are perfectly united to the character of God. So to, to love his words is to love his character. You can't appropriately love his words if you don't actually love his character. They go together. I want you to see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the sufficiency of the scripture. This is the doctrine in the Bible, the teaching of the sufficiency of scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 
3, starting in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this has individual implications and corporate implications. But I want, to, I want you to see several things here. Number one, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It's crucial. It's so important. A good way for you to actually to know, kind of like a, a test for yourself, to know if, whether or not you actually believe the Word of God is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Um, for those who, I grew up in a charismatic background, and I'm so thankful. We can learn, charismatics and non-charismatics can learn from each other because everybody should agree that we need the presence and the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I hope you know that. Without the Spirit of God, we are not Christians. You have to have the Spirit of God to awaken you. The Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is doing things and empowering things in our lives. The Holy Spirit gathers people, convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit is at work everywhere. We need the restraining power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's never going to be a day in all of our life that we don't need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us. We need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit when we come together. We come together without the Spirit of God. We just come together. We, we have to have the Holy Spirit of God at work. And He promises to do that in the lives of the people of God. He leads us, and directs us. But here's the deal. One of the errors that can be caught, if not taught, in charismatic circles is that people will get more excited and amazed at the extra-biblical Word of God, the nudge of the Spirit, the sign or the wonder, more excited about that subjective impressions from the Holy Spirit than they are the actual Word of God. Maybe it's because of familiarity. Maybe it's because every morning we wake up and read it. But all too common in the life of the believer, we miss the supernatural reality of the words in this book. It dawned on me several years ago, I don't know, um, maybe it was probably a decade ago, when I was growing up, and so thankful for the home I grew up in and the church I grew up in, but one of the things that was a disconnect for me is I, when I heard about God speaking, I did not connect that to the Bible. It was always the extra-biblical voice of the Holy Spirit. It was always about that prophetic word or whatever it may be. And when it dawned on me, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're telling me that the Bible is the words of God? And that he's never silent? That I always have a word? That I can always hear him speak and speak audibly? This is amazing. It's revolutionary. Wait a minute. We have the words of God? We have the word of God here. Are you kidding me? And we're so blessed in the post-Gutenberg Gutenberg era that we have multiple of these in our home? We have the privilege of being able to wake up in the mornings or go to bed at night and hear my father speak. And when I'm feeling lonely or alone or discouraged, I can open up and I can hear my father speak to me. Are you kidding me? What an amazing thing. But for some reason, that feels less supernatural than the next sign or wonder. And here's what I want you to know. This is a sign and wonder book. When you open this up and you read it, you're reading God's speaking voice to you. 
Don't ever, ever, ever take it for granted that you get to hear God speak. His very words. And as we read the word of God audibly, that's God's word audible to you and to us. It's so important. And all scripture is breathed out by God. The words of God. It's so important. We should never desire words from God or signs from God more, more than the words of God. When we think about the supernatural reality of God's working in our lives, this book, the God's words, it should get our juices flowing. Oh my gosh. And yes, there are times, I get it in your Bible reading plan, when you're reading through that Leviticus and you're not like the people in Nehemiah's day. It's like, come on, Ezra, five more hours of Leviticus. I get it. I get that. <laughs> However, please don't miss the supernatural reality, what we're doing even right now. Like there's signs and wonders happening in our midst, and we just don't see them. You get to hear the words of God. Now it says all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. There is not lesser or greater inspiration. There isn't some verses that are used to go against each other. We have one Bible. And theological conversations, make sure, make sure when you're having theological conversations or you're trying to figure out what God's word says, make sure that you don't get pet Bible verses that you like. And you put them against these not pet Bible verses that you don't like over here. The Bible is never against itself. It interprets itself. And all of Scripture is God-breathed. God we should love it all. We should never, ever, ever come to God's Word, read through it, and think, I don't like that. And if we do, we should repent and say, okay, God, change me. Because we don't regulate the Word. The Word regulates us. And it is such arrogance and pride for anybody or the church or any person to come to God's word and say, I don't like what my father has to say. I'm going to walk away from it. We want to hear our father speak and we want to respond to him and say, yes, father, I may not understand, but I trust you. All scripture is God breathed and we need God's word, all of it, not just some of it to be shaped the way he would have us be shaped. Even the hard stuff, even the book of Joshua, even difficult words in the Bible that are hard to understand, all of it is good for us. Never judge God or put your nose up or bring your standards to the Bible. Always submit it all to the Lord and say, okay, God, shape me individually. As a church, shape us corporately because we want to obey and honor all that you have for us. That's Christian humility. All scripture is profitable. There's none of it that's not profitable. That's important. None of it that's not profitable. All scripture is profitable for teaching. There's nothing in this book that's off limits or that somehow is unprofitable to teach it. Now you can teach the Bible in unprofitable ways, but all of God's word is profitable and good for you. It's good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. This is what the Bible does to us and for us. And the Bible does this. So when, when you get to the Bible and you're thinking some way on a particular category or topic, whatever it may be, when the people were coming before Nehemiah's day and they had different things that they wanted to do, they needed to be shaped and told, here's how the law of God works. This is right. This is wrong. And they didn't get to say, but Nehemiah, uh, I don't, uh, here's what I think. 
I mean, Nehemiah later in the book is like pulling out people's hair, okay? You just didn't get to say, well, here's what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. What does God have to say about it? It's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. The Word of God corrects us, trains us in righteousness. Do you want to be trained in righteousness? The Holy Spirit of God leads you to the words that He wrote and will convict you. If you want to go on this route of following the Holy Spirit disconnected from the Word of God, you're going to end up a weirdo. You'll end up in a cult or something. There's no such thing as following the Holy Spirit without coming to His words. There's just not. And the Holy Spirit of God never leads you to devalue the words He wrote. Where what I really want is this other revelation. Like, okay, we, we have the same revelation here. And the Holy Spirit leads you to that. And the Holy Spirit will help you understand. We were thinking, oh my gosh, I've never seen that before. That's so helpful for, for my life today. Oh my gosh. Have you been there? Reading your Bible? You read a verse that you've read a thousand times? And you read it a thousand and first time? And you're thinking, how did I not see that? It's right there all along. It's like staring at me right now. Boom, right there. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit helping you understand the words that he wrote. That's the Holy Spirit at work. These two things work together, the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. These are you're not contradictory. They're not, I like the Spirit of God or I like the Word of God. There's no such thing as that. That's a false dichotomy. So the Holy Spirit of God turns us to the Word of God, and we are trained in righteousness. If you want to grow in Christ's likeness, if you want to grow as a man, if you want to grow as a woman into all that God would have you be, then you need to have your nose in this book in a humble manner. Just open the Bible and read and pray. There was a study done by a big church in Chicago years ago, and they spent like 20-something million dollars over a 20-year period trying to figure out what is the key ingredients to spiritual growth. So they did all these, this analysis and all this kind of stuff. Well, after like millions and millions of dollars spent and all these surveys and all these studies over a couple decades, they, de they determined the number one key ingredient to spiritual growth is time in the Word of God. Those who had been reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God met their spiritual growth markers, whatever those spiritual growth markers were. Like, we could have saved them millions of dollars, you know? Be in the Word of God. Love God's Word. Training in righteousness. That's what the Bible does. Now, here's what it says. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every single good work. The sufficiency of Scripture. Uh... The Holy Spirit, as you're studying the Bible, this book, by God's grace, everything that you need to be a complete man or woman is in this book. Right here. Everything. That you could be a complete person is in the Word of God. You don't need the latest psychology book. You don't need the next data and analysis of what's going on in psychology today or whatever it may be. You don't need to know the latest Christian trends. You don't need to go to the next big conference. You don't need the next spiritual high or low. This, this book has everything, the Word of God has everything for the people of God to be complete. This, this is why the, the book of Nehemiah is so crucial. is to be reshaped, voila, the Word of God. That's what we need, the Word of God. Equipped for every good work. Hear me say this. There is nothing in your life that you will, no good work, 
equipped for every good work. There is no good work in your life that you will walk in, that you will do, in all the works, the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. There's nothing he calls you to that this, work, that this Bible does not prepare you for. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that God has so encapsulated his word to you that if you'll study this, if you'll know this, then the Holy Spirit of God will help you understand and apply the principles, the commands, the good news of the gospel of Jesus in every single way it needs to be applied. That he will help you and guide you. But it's never going to be disconnected from the word of God. Complete and equipped for every good work. If you have a Bible, you have everything you need to be a complete person. You have everything you need to do every single work that God has called you to. Now, Here's the question I have in my mind. What's the difference between this group and the 49,000 people that were before Nehemiah and Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8? Our advantage is that the Spirit of God indwells us today in a unique way that the Spirit of God did not indwell the individual people of God in the Old Testament. For years, I've tried to figure out practically how that works itself out. I don't know yet. I don't know practically, even biblically, how that works, that the Spirit of God would be upon the people of God, but not within the people of God. And then our every single day experience as post-Pentecost believers, having the Spirit of God indwelling us, we get to experience this world in a different manner than the people in Nehemiah's day did. It's unique. I want you to turn one more time. Ezekiel, major prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 36. And I want you to see our advantage that we have. In case you don't know this, the people of God still sinned. They had the covenants, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had deliverance, redemption, and yet the people of God in the Old Testament still rebelled against God. They still did not obey God's law. You have these small moments where it looks like things are going really well, and then all of a sudden, Nehemiah, after the wall is built, is pulling people's hair out. That's just how it is. They needed a rescuer. They needed a savior. They needed somebody who would come and fulfill and obey the law. And that's what the Old Testament really is pointing us always out to, that there's going to be somebody, there's going to be this redeemer, there's going to be this true prophet, priest, king, that's going to come and save us. And we know... Through the life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is the one that ultimately obeys the law of God for the people of God in their place. And Jesus dies the death they should have died. And in the Old Testament, we have this promise that the Spirit of God would indwell the people of God. I want you to just hear this. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23 through 27. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I, through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you the heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my 
rules. Okay, again, we're being shaped by the word. These are, these are prophetic. These are promises. This is what God's going to do. And from our perspective, this is what God has done. In their day, this is what God will do. In our day, this is what God has done. And now the people of God have got this new heart and the spirit of God indwelling within them. And now what God is in the business is doing, of doing is... He is causing us to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. This is our advantage. That we have new hearts, born again, we are new creatures, having the Holy Spirit indwell in us, not just on us, not just corporately on us, individually in us, and then corporately when we come together in our midst. And God is working in us, causing us to obey His statutes and rules. There's a, a level of conviction that we have that the people in the Old Testament didn't have. I don't know how to connect these dots exactly theologically. I don't know exactly the day-to-day -day life. But that conviction that you have internally, that's the Holy Spirit of God not letting you get away with it. When you know something that's like, okay, that's not right, or I wasn't 100% truthful. Any exaggerators in the room in here? Let's go ahead. The story's not going great. The embellishment, you know, it's like, I promise the fish was this big. <laughs> Ransom the other day, where, where were you at, buddy? Where somebody asked you how big the fish was you caught. Where was that? It was somewhere. Yeah. It was at a yard sale. That's right. We were at a yard sale talking, and somebody, we were talking about being fishermen, and, and asked Ransom how big a fish was, and he was like, it was this big. And I turned, and was like, he's a fisherman, you know. <laughs> it was, you know. Okay. Okay. Uh, the embellishing stories, that's lying. You should not bear false witness against a brother. Like, do not, going, don't, do not go on lying to one another. We're not, like, we, we can't lie to each other. That's not right. And so maybe today, in your embellishment, you, walk, you go, to, go out to eat or whatever, and you're about to embellish a story, and you're like, okay, wait a minute, I can't do that anymore. That's the Holy Spirit of God causing you, causing you. The word is cause. God is causing us to obey him. No, I'm not going to let you get away with that any longer. And there's going to be times in our life where we've dealt with particular issues and we've never seen it before. And it's like a light bulb goes off and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have been doing that for years. I didn't even, I can't even believe that. And the Holy Spirit, God, not through condemnation, but through conviction, will lead us to obey, to follow the Lord in thankfulness and gratefulness for God's grace to say, okay, God, I'm going to put down... I'm going to stop embellishing stories, and I'm going to start obeying you in this. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But you're committed by the grace of God because the Spirit of God is alive within you. You're a supernatural person. There's not a natural person in here. If you're born again, you've been born again by the Spirit of God. God of the universe dwells inside of you. That is our unique advantage. We have new hearts from the inside out. We have had our heart of flesh removed, our heart of stone removed, and God has surgically done this heart transplant and taken out this stony, cold, dead heart and put in a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of God and for the good of people, that loves the gospel of Jesus, that loves God from the inside out, whose delight from the inside out is, I want to honor God, I want to obey God. I don't want to live for selfish means anymore. I don't want to live for myself or my glory. I want to honor God. The deepest part about the New Testament believer is from the inside out. The core of who you are is 
I want to obey the Lord. Do you battle and dwelling sin? You bet. To the day you die, but you hate it. You don't like it. You're frustrated when you get cozy with it. Oh, God's not going to let me keep doing that. I got to get in the fight. I got to fight against that. Our distinct advantage today, here in Carbondale, Illinois, when you go home to the square footage of your house, your advantage that you have, that the people in Nehemiah's day didn't have, is that you have a new heart. You have the Spirit of God within you. You have all the words of God right in front of you. And you, by the grace of God, get to follow and obey. We obey the Word of God through the Spirit of God. We have new hearts. We turn to the Word of God, and the Spirit helps us live as new creatures. Here's the big idea. You need God's word to shape your life as an individual and to regulate your life as an individual. And we, as the people of God corporately, need God's word to shape our lives and regulate how we live together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. And it's not just simply that we would have the rules, but we would have the rule keeper as our savior. Jesus, thank you that you came and you lived this spirit-filled life and you obeyed everything in our behalf. And we're enthralled with the glory we see in the pages of the scriptures. We see you, Jesus. We see you everywhere. We can't get through Genesis without seeing you a hundred times. We can't get throughout Nehemiah without seeing you over and over again, being the true rescuer, the true deliverer out of the bondage of Babylon, out of captivity, the true promise keeper. We can't, we can't look at the book of Nehemiah and not see you. Holy Spirit, thank you for empowering us and dwelling us. We want to be a people shaped by your word. Individually, for every single individual here, God, as they're studying your word in the mornings or in the evenings or at lunchtime, whatever it is, God, I pray that we would humbly come to you and that we would be shaped, we would be changed, we would individually change and amend anything in our lives that does not honor you. We want to honor you with the way we conduct ourselves, with the work of our hands. And God, I pray we wouldn't do that as some self-saving project where we're trying to justify ourselves or we're trying to be away with any of that kind of nonsense. Help us to be so grateful for our salvation that we have, that we are justified right now in spite of how my day tomorrow will or will not go, that I am saved and that I am right with God right now. Help that truth transform the way we live. Holy Spirit, lead us. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.